take them with me, please, and turn to Romans. Romans chapter 13. I'm sorry, Romans chapter 14. I'm going to start in verse 13, and we will <clears throat> preach through the text. The Bible says, let us not therefore, I need my glasses, sorry. You know when you're getting old, when you got to have these things. Does it get any worse? Oh, great. But I will tell you this, you know you're getting old when you go to bed at 7 o'clock New Year's Eve. That was me. <laughs> I'm still getting over this nonsense that I've had for four weeks now. But Romans chapter 14, verse 13. Let us not therefore judge one another anymore, but judge this rather, that no man put a stumbling block or an occasion to fall in his brother's way. As we read this, I want you to pay attention specifically to the negative things that happen to the weak brother based on how the weaker or the stronger brother uses his Christian liberty. It's, it's amazing. Listen, look. Let us therefore judge, judge one another, and let us not therefore judge one another anymore. But judge this rather, that no man put a stumbling block, that's one thing, or an occasion to fall in his brother's way. He's talking to the strong. I know and am persuaded by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean in itself, in and of itself. But to him that esteemeth anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. But if thy brother be grieved, there's another thing you can do, with thy meat, now walkest thou not charitably. Destroy not him, you can do that, with thy meat. For whom Christ died. Let not then your good be evil spoken of. For the kingdom of God is not meat and drink. It's righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. For he that is that in these things serveth Christ is acceptable to God and approved of men. Let us therefore follow after the things which make for peace. There's something positive stronger can do for the weak and they therewith one may edify one another there is another thing positive that we that strong can do for the weak for me destroy not the work of god literally the strong christian can destroy the work of god with his liberty all things indeed are pure, but it is evil for that man who eateth with offense. You can offend weaker Christians. It is good neither to eat flesh nor to drink wine nor anything that whereby thy brother stumbleth. You can cause them to stumble or is offended. You can offend them or is made weak. Hast thou faith? Have it thyself before God. Happy is he that condemneth not himself in that which he alloweth. Then verse 23 gets really tough. And he that doubteth is damned if he eat 
because he eateth not of faith. For, who, for whatsoever is not of faith is sin. Folks, this is extremely difficult and extremely complicated and extremely important passage of Scripture. Because there are weak Christians and there are strong Christians and everywhere in between. There is not a one person in here who has reached the point of extremely mature Christian. We are all maturing Christians. But within that maturing line, if you will, there are strong and weak Christians. How do we deal with that? I'm going to get this off here because we are done with this anyways. Did it go off? Did it say it going off? All right. This morning, we are going to go through this delicately, yet prayerfully, we will do it without weakness. Because these are extremely important things. This last week, we, I went through these things, and it's been going on now for three weeks. And I have gone through, my favorite commentator had one little tiny paragraph on verse 23. And the other commentator had like five pages and said, this is probably the most controversial verse in all of Scripture. So it's all over the page, all over the realm of difficulty and hard. One of the things, and I would encourage you this, many people ask me, what commentary should I be listening to or reading to help me study Scripture? Emphatically and without a single hesitation, if you're looking for general commentaries that help you in understanding the difficult stuff in Scripture, hands down, John MacArthur's commentaries are what you need. I would tell everybody that. It's so important. He is not perfect. He is not God, but he does a great job in taking the extremely difficult and making it simple. How many understand that? But he still makes mistakes. He's a man, and he would tell you that himself. Now, when you come to the book of Ephesians, there are people who have written just their whole life. They focused on one book of the Bible. That's the one you want. His name is Honer, but this is not Ephesians. This is Romans. Um, it is interesting when you read Luther's books on Romans. Oh, man, he hates Catholics, and he lets them have it everywhere. It's just unbelievable. Regardless, this morning I have consulted five different guys on this, and I literally called people because I needed, I didn't get it, and they didn't understand it either. So this is somewhat difficult, and we're going to plow through this. One of the things I'm going to do is this: I'm going to work. We're going to work through five different principles through the whole text of 13 all the way down through verse 23. The issue is we're going to look at what is the conflict between the weak and the strong. What is it? Secondly, Paul's fundamental agreement, he absolutely agrees with, theologically, the strong. We're going to see that. 
Number three, what Paul means when he speaks of the weak stumbling. That's when we get into trouble. Because when I, look, when I show, told you to look at all of these things that the strong can do to, against the weak, just about every one of those things have eschatological truths behind them. We're talking, I mean, this is huge language. He's talking damnation, condemnation. It's, it's very difficult. Verse number four is an explanation how the strong's behavior could lead to the weak, for, for the weak to, the fall, to fall. How can they fall and what does it mean to fall? It talks about them falling. How is that? What is he talking about? Can a Christian lose his salvation? Okay, I'll ask that again. It should be an emphatic thing. Can a Christian lose his salvation? Are there professing Christians that maybe he's talking about that aren't truly born again? Maybe it's talking about something other than losing your salvation. Here's the reality. At this moment, I am not qualified to answer that question, except that you cannot lose your salvation if you're truly born again. And the last one, the theological rationale given to the strong in verse 16 through 19. And we will, and it's so important, folks, as a believer, you have influence on other believers. And how you use that influence has dire consequences. I am currently following what is called the Pastors Fellowship Facebook page. I shouldn't, I know. Because it makes me angry just about every time I read something. But they literally, this last week, have been talking about using their Christian liberty to not have Sunday morning service on Christmas Day. One of the wives chimed in and literally said, it's not fair that pastors and the elders have to have Christmas Day service because we don't get to have time with our family. This is exactly what we've been dealing with in Romans chapters 14 with Christian liberty and legalism. How many can see that? The weak, verse 15, are grieved over what? Verse 15, we find that they're grieved over food. They don't believe it's right for them to eat. And the strong should be aware because the weak could even come to ruin over such food. Verse 15 says this, it says, For if because of your food, of food, your brother is hurt. There is something about the food. Now, what is that issue? Well, we know from Corinthians and Paul's other writings that the issue is, well, it's food offered to idols. But that's not necessarily true. That is part of it, but it's only part of it. Because we're going to see shortly here they read the Old Testament. 
and they believe there is, here's the terms, we read it here in the text. How, does, how do they, how do they uh, understand the food? Either it's clean or unclean. Now let me ask you, what pagan king or pagan god deals with clean and unclean food? As far as we know, none. But we do know in the Old Testament, those are the very words that are used in the Old Testament law. It is quite ironic that one of the main guys I've um, interacted with this week was his name Schreiner. He is a post-millennialist. He is a replacement theologian. And here's what he said. They don't understand that Christ fulfilled the Old Testament laws. And all things are new now. <laughs> but yet, but yet, as a covenant theologian, we want to go back to baptizing infants to replace circumcision because that was taught to the Jews to do. And the list is endless. State church issues, all those things. The food and drink are the subject of the debate. Verse 17 is clear on that. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking. This is the issue, but it's righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Verse 20 says, the strong are admonished to show concern for the weak, since the later could be destroyed on account of food. They could be destroyed. How in the world could a weak brother be destroyed because of food or drink? What is that issue? The Bible says in verse 21, do not tear down the work of God for the sake of food. So not only can you, it's tearing down the work of God based on what you eat. How many think that's crazy? But in this context, in this culture, it's real. Do not tear down the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are clean, but they are evil for the man who eats and gives offense. Indeed, it may even be necessary for the strong to abstain from all meat and wine for the sake of the weak. Verse 21, it is good not to eat meat or to drink wine or to do anything by which your brother stumbles. The peril for the weak is that they will condemn themselves when they eat. That's the issue. And it's not necessarily, and, and, and to be honest with you, I am convinced that it is true that weak Gentiles that were in pagan um, religions are very offended at eating meat offered to those pagan idols. I truly agree with that. But that's not the context. I'm convinced that's not the context here. And the reason it's not is because he uses the terms that are Old Testament pharisaical Jewish terms to, to understand this. He says in verse 14, <clears throat> let me back up here. But when they eat, but he who doubts is condemned if he eats because his eating is not from faith. Whatever is not from faith is sin. Verse 23. The weak believe they are pleasing God. Why? I'm pleasing God by not eating this unclean meat. 
Where do we find that? Verse 14, I know and am convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but to him who thinks it's anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. He's talking about Old Testament laws. And the reality is the weak believe they are pleasing God because they are following Old Testament prohibitions. Therefore, they truly believe, I cannot eat pork. It is an unclean thing. And then when they do eat pork, they feel ashamed. They feel like they're doing something against God. That is the context in this text that we're dealing with. Verse 20 says the same thing. Do not tear down the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are clean. But they are evil for the man who eats and gives offense. The term clean and unclean are without question Jewish in origin. There's no question about it. These guys are going back to the Bible that they have, which is what? Well, they certainly have the Old Testament. They might have some of the New Testament, but they certainly don't have all of it. They have the Old Testament, though. And what they know about God is found in that Old Testament. They're in a transition time. How many get this? And so what they know that pleases God is, don't you dare eat pork. And amongst other things, clean and unclean things. Another one we find in, in um, how many remember the uh, Jerusalem Council? Acts 13, I believe it is. 15, thank you. In Acts 15, abstain from strangling animals and drink and eating it. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. Why? That's an Old Testament law. But they held to it because that's what they believed God was pleased with. That's why the Judaizers went over to every church it's, it, to me, it blows me away how the, the, the Judaizers are not positive in the New Testament with Paul. How many would say amen to that? He was in their face, kicked them out. Yet, the Judaizers are doing exactly the same thing as the covenant theologians today. They're doing, the, they're doing how many get this? Anybody who infant baptizes is a covenant theologian who believes that bat baptism has replaced circumcision. And God requires circumcision, so God's going to require infant baptism. Now, there's a leap there. This isn't my opinion. This is what they say in their own notes. So the reality is, God is, and, and this is what's very interesting. Listen, God is saying in His Word, listen, we got to understand what they have in their hand is the Old Testament. They believe by not eating unclean things and by only eating clean things, they are pleasing God. So don't you dare change that. Because if you're going to manipulate them into eating because it's a cool thing to do or whatever, don't you dare try to do that. It is their faith that the reason they are not eating that meat and you will destroy that faith if you manipulate them into eating it. How many get this? 
It's exactly what the text is talking about. And in essence, don't you dare flaunt your Christian liberty. That's what he's saying. The terms clean up, okay, the Old Testament Jews were beholden to observe food laws because that pleased God by obeying Him. And the weak still look to that law and with full conscience observe it because they love the Lord. It is not only an observance of the food laws, but also the observance of certain days. We find that in verse 6. Who observes certain days? Sabbath. It's an Old Testament thing again. And yet we can sit there and point fingers at them and laugh at them. That, well, they didn't know anything. That's all they had, some of them. How are they to know? The point is, the weak have a heart-desired motivation of pleasing God by celebrating special days and not eating meats. A truly strong Christian says, Amen. Love God, love others. An arrogant one says, You guys are a bunch of idiots. You don't know what you're doing. Come on, just get with it. That is not the Christian attitude. And by the way, I do believe this is culturally relevant. We have all Scripture today. Now, the Bible doesn't say anything against trying to help them see theologically what is wrong with that. Amen. But that's not what's happening. And it's not what's happening today. Right now, in the Christian school movement, colleges I'm talking about, the Christian seminaries, this is what's happening. Christian liberty is king. And they are literally pushing them, the young, the young men are pushing each other to go ahead and use that Christian liberty, drink as much as you want, have a great time, don't worship on Sunday, it's just a day. They're being pushed to do this. I have first-hand evidence from a young man that lived with us. He said, Tim, it's unbelievable. All of them are drinkers, but they're not only drinkers. Many of them now are drunkards. Why? They're taking their Christian liberty to an extreme, which is absolutely anti-God in a sense. God says it very clear, clearly, be not drunk with wine where it is an excess, but be filled with what? Spirit. Now, these young men that have taken their Christian liberty to an extreme are now drunkards. A truly strong Christian says, Amen. Love others, serve God. Why? Why? Because in verse 2, or number 2 that we'll get to, sorry, not verse 2, we see that Paul was a, strong, was a strong Christian. Despite the fact that the weak Christians abstained from certain foods and drinks because of the Old Testament, abstained from certain foods and drinks because of the Old Testament law, Paul was a strong Christian. Remember, Paul was raised as a Jew and a Pharisee of Pharisees. Strictly observed these laws, did he not? 
Now he obviously sides with the strong. I know, he says in the text in verse 14, I know I am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is, in a, is unclean in and of itself. <laughs> Why? Because Jesus himself said, all things are clean. And he took that and believes that. So he believes that nothing is unclean. He believes that all things are clean. How did Paul receive this conviction of his? It says, the Bible says in this text, in, in verse 14, in the Lord Jesus. In other words, Paul could say in today's vernacular, I am absolutely convinced by God that nothing is an unclean in and of itself. Why? The text of the Bible says that. It's not being, um, what is it called when everybody else is doing it? Pure pressure? Manipulation, love of self comes in more often than we think. But Paul received this from God, from the text. Where did Paul get this? In the Lord Jesus. The reference to the Lord Jesus signals that Paul derived his certitude. He, 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 he made his conviction based on what the Lord Jesus Christ did here on this earth. Matthew chapter 15, it is not what enters into the mouth that defiles man, Jesus says, but what? What proceeds out of his mouth that defiles the man? Verse 12, then the disciples came and said to him, do you know the Pharisees were offended when they heard this statement? Why were the Pharisees offended? Because they're still living in Old Testament law, that's why. And obviously it's going to be offensive to them. But he answered and said, Every plant which my heavenly Father did not plant shall be uprooted. Let them alone. They are blind guides of the blind. And if a blind man guides a blind man, both fall into the ditch. Mark chapter 7, and verse 14 and following. After he called the crowd to him again, he began to listen, saying to them, Listen to me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside the man which can defile him if it goes into him. But the things which proceed out of the man are what but the things that proceed out of the man are what defile the man. If any man has ears to hear, let him hear it. When he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples questioned him about the parable. He said to them, Are you so lacking in understanding also? Do you not get this? Do you not understand that whatever goes into the man from outside cannot defile him? Because it does not go into his heart, but into his stomach, and then it's eliminated. I mean, it's kind of gross what he's saying. But he's saying this has nothing to do with it. Thus he declared, all food is clean. And he was saying, that which proceeds out of the man, that is what defiles the man. For from within, for with, from, for from within, out of the heart of men, proceeds evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adultery, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deeds of sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things proceed from within and defile the man basically is indicating that foods can no longer defile anyone. As much as I, yeah, 
All food is clean. It might not all be good, <laughs> right? As in, you might not like it, but it's still clean. The idea is that no food or drink is inherently defiled or impure. By the way, Christian, that means I was, I'm going to be reading R.C. Sproul here in a little bit. Not all of him, but his, his because I, again, I wanted as much information as I can get because this is difficult. R.C. Sproul was sitting at a, a dinner somewhere. Um, someone had invited all of them to a restaurant. And he was sitting down and the waiter came by and said, okay, how many drinks should I get for each of you? And the lady that was kind of in charge, we are all Christians here. We don't drink. Well, here's the problem. Is that a true statement? There's so many wrong statements with that. We are all Christians here? Well, you don't know that. <laughs> Correct? Only God knows the heart. We don't, all, we don't drink. In other words, she was saying to that... <coughs> <coughs> It was, she was implying to that waiter that it's a sin to drink. Is that not true? And that simply is not true. It's simply not true. And he goes on with that. But the point is, we have to be careful in what we say. Do we not? <clears throat> the idea is that no food or drink is inherently defiled or impure. It is clear that Paul departs from what is required in the Old Testament, for the purity laws were a revelation of God's will. Both the historical Jesus and Paul argue that the purity laws are no longer in effect. But here's the issue. You have to believe that Jesus is God in order for that to be true. The Pharisees did not. They were holding on to their Old Testament system. The dawning of the New Age and the inclusion of the Gentiles have rendered those Old Testament laws irrelevant. By the way, that was written by a covenant theologian. I just wish in practice it would have been fleshed out. Regardless, the main point being advanced with reference to verse 14 is that the strong are correct in seeing food laws as non-binding. Paul himself has no doubt, and of course this is going to be an issue with Jewish people, for sure, are, is it not? This is all they know. This is going to be hard for them. For Gentiles eating <coughs> food that is with prostitutes and all that nonsense. It's going to be hard for them. It'll also be hard for them because Judaizers are coming into the church telling them, obey these laws. This is a difficult issue. And is that issue the same today? I don't know that it's the same today, but there certainly are remnants of it today within our churches. The main point being, uh, the strong are correct in seeing food laws as non-binding. Paul himself has no doubts that all foods are clean. 
He reiterates it in verse 20. All things are clean. The reference to food and eating in verse 20 demonstrates that he means by (coughs) all things. He means all foods are clean. Verse 22 also hints at the superiority of the Strong's theology. Never does Paul assign faith to the idiosyncrasies of the weak. Does that make sense? He does not say the weak are really strong theologians. He's actually saying the exact opposite. And he's telling the strong, you have the right theology, now you need to have the right heart. How many get that? You have to have the right heart precisely because of their hesitancy to eat certain foods They are weak in the faith. They don't understand all theology. They're weak that way. By contrast, the strong have strong faith because they have right theology. They understand why you can eat all things now. Christ is the fulfillment of that. By contrast, the position of the strong is at one with faith. Their theology and faith are, are, are coinciding together. The issue is, though, even though their theology is correct, the practice needs to be Christ-like. Does that make sense? The practice has to be Christ-like. <clears throat> Paul merely asks that they do not flaunt their faith before the weak. Before God, they should maintain their faith. And when Paul says, keep it to yourself, he means that they are free to eat and drink whatever they wish in the privacy of their homes. And with other strong believers, they should abstain from food and drink that grieves the weak at public meals. This is where John MacArthur comes in and he gives this example. He says, and and, and it's kind of... I will give it to you. He says, just think of this. There is a strong brother in Christ is going to have lunch with a weak brother in Christ, and they're going to meet at an unbeliever's home. Now, you can imagine that happening because the strong and the weak Christian want to give the gospel to the world, right? So let's have dinner with them and give them the gospel. They sit down at the meal. And at the meal, here's the strong man. He looks at that steak and eyes that steak and says, oh, yeah, yeah, baby. And the weak sits there and says, I'm going to abstain from that meat. What does the strong do? Does that make sense? Is that a conundrum? It is. MacArthur argues, and I believe that Paul is arguing, Strong Christian, you don't eat that meat. You do not eat it. Because it not only be, and he will tell us in the third thing we're going to get to, he's going to tell us why we don't do that. Because remember I told, showed you to look at all these words that you as strong Christians can do to weak Christians, and all of them are horribly, eschatologically minded, condem- condemnation, hurt them, grieve them, frustrate them, their faith becomes weak. And if they're not a believer, but a professor, they'll just ditch it all. 
what in the world are you doing? God tells us in the Bible not to eat this, and you're eating this. How many can imagine hurting a weaker Christian by doing that? And why are you hurting them? Because I can. That sounds loving, doesn't it? That's why Paul says, don't you dare, don't you dare flaunt your Christian liberty over food, but think of love and the gospel in Christ. You know, how many have to have steak to live? No. Be without it then for, this, for their sake. And I think Paul makes it very clear in Corinthians over and over again and many other passages of Scripture. The guy that flaunts his spiritual liberty to eat meat and literally hurt that younger Christian, it were better that a millstone were hung around his neck and he's thrown into the depths of the sea. Folks, drowning is one of the worst deaths you could ever experience. Not that I've experienced it. But it is. And Christ makes it with strong language. Don't you dare. Don't you dare. Let's keep going. Uh -uh. Paul merely is asking them, do not flaunt their faith before the weak. Before God, they should maintain their faith. Keep it to themselves in the privacy of their homes. They should abstain from food and drink that grieves the weak in public meals. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 19. Here's what Paul says. Now, how many of you would say Paul was a great Christian, a mature Christian? Probably one of the strongest Christians we read about in Scripture. Here's what he says. For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all. What did he mean by that? I am free to do what I want, but I will neglect, refuse that freedom to be a slave, a servant, a lover of others. That's what he's saying. To the Jews, what did he do? You know the verses. What did he do? To the Jews, I became a Jew. Remember in his third missionary journey, when he got back to Jerusalem, they threw him in jail because why? He paid so that people could go and be cleansed in the temple. How many remember that? And they got all after him. What are you doing? What are we doing? We're living in the Christian age. What are you doing with that? Hey, as a Jew, I became a Jew. Those things are irrelevant to the gospel. These are traditions. There's nothing wrong with them. They're clean, fine. To the Jew, I became a Jew. Why? Why, why, why? So that I might win the Jews. To those under the law, as under the law, though not being myself under the law. Theologically, I know those things are nonsense, but I get it. That's all they've heard. So, to those under the law, as under the law, though not, my, by my, not being myself under the law, so that I might win those who are under the law. To those that are without the law, as without law, 
though not being without law of God, but under the law of Christ, so that I might win those who are without law. To the weak. Here he gets us specifically what he's going to talk about in Romans. To the weak, I stayed strong and showed them good theology by my strong stance in front of them. Is that what he did? He said, to the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men that, I, that by all means might save some. I do all things for the sake of the gospel so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. Do you not know that those who run in a race run all, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. Then they do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. That, you know, that's probably one of the favorite verses of most uh, uh, athletes. I mean, they love that verse. What we don't understand usually, he's talking about weak Christians here. And he's saying, listen guys, love them. Buffet your body. Have discipline. You don't have to gorge yourself on, flaunt your Christian liberty. Matter of fact, don't do that. Because, and we'll get to that. <laughs> Maybe. <coughs> Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim, I box or I buffet my body in such a way, not as beating the air. Discipline. What is discipline? How many love self-discipline when it comes to Thanksgiving Day dinner? When it comes to New Year's Eve party, Christmas Day dinner, Discipline's out the window, usually. I'm not saying that's wicked or bad or whatever. That's a whole other thing. What I'm saying is, January 2nd, you're going to look down and say, i got to lose a few pounds. Therefore, I'm going to do this, that, or the other thing in order to get back into condition. How many understand that? Whether it's Fasting or dieting or not eating, whatever. Whatever it is. Self-discipline. Here's what Paul's saying. I can gorge myself and flaunt my liberty in front of these weak people, but that will hurt and destroy them. Therefore, I will have self-discipline and not do that. Because it's not about me, it's about them. And truly, it's not only not about them, but it's about Christ. That's where the buck stops. I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. When we flaunt our Christian liberty, we are disqualifying ourselves to be useful for the Lord, for the gospel. We do. We do. Paul's agreement with the strong is also communicated in the last line of verse 22. 
Blessed is the one who does not condemn himself in what he approves. Some people believe it applies to either the weak or the strong or, and pronounce a blessing on those who do not suffer pains of conscience, whether they eat or abstain. Some believe it relates only to the strong, only because the verb describes their testing and approving of eating of all meat. The strong are blessed if they do not bring judgment on themselves by eating and drinking the foods that cause the weak to stumble. The strong would incur judgment if when eating they cause the weak to stumble. Still others say that God, Paul pronounces a blessing on the strong who can eat and drink without any qualms of conscience. They do not judge themselves. That is, they do not feel any sense of condemnation eating what they approve of. In other words, they can eat all foods. It doesn't matter. The problem is if this interpretation is correct, then Paul in what I just read, is absolutely a dork. I'm going to understand that. Paul's not saying, Paul is certainly not saying, go and live like you want because you know theology, you live like theology matters, and if it hurts them, it hurts them, it doesn't matter. He's not saying that at all. Paul is agreeing with their theology, but he wants them to take a pause and look at Christ at their practice of that theology. Does that make sense? I know that all things are, and here's what happens, especially in our arrogant, prideful way. There is nothing wrong with me to worship on Monday. Why are we worshiping today? Who are we worshiping today? Who are we worshiping today? Why are we worshiping him today? Because this is the day he saved us from our sins. Is Sunday any more important a day or any day of, we could worship any day we want? Yes, we could do that. But we worship today because Christ is the focus, not our programs, not our plans of what we want to do tomorrow, today, or whatever. I've heard people in this world today that are saying, hey, I can go watch the Viking game. I don't know why they would do that in live. I can go watch the Viking game Sunday afternoon, and I can watch, I can watch Pastor preach on Monday, and I'm good to go. Okay. And, and, and that's all under Christian liberty. I understand what you're saying, and there is a sense of Christian liberty. But man, get over yourself. Get over it. Your life is not yours. Look at Paul. I don't do those things. I can, but I don't. Because my life is a slave to others to see them come to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. That's what matters. And I will not let my liberty affect that. The weak are not similarly blessed because the weak have wrong theology. They think this meat is tainted. Paul knows that, that there isn't, that's a fake God. That's nothing, right? For meat offered to idols. 
Paul knows, and so do strong Christians know, that that was Old Testament ceremonial and purity laws that, that, were, that was given to the Jewish people, the Israelites, not to us today. Christ himself said that. We all get that. But not everybody knows how many angels dance on the head of a pin. We all do, right? You see, we all have faulty theology. We all don't know everything. Our job is to serve each other for the glory of God, despite what we have as theology. Now, do we grow in theology and the grace of God? Yes or no? Amen and amen. But not everybody is where you or I or whatever is. And sometimes there are other people that are higher than we are, stronger than we are. Nowhere does Paul say that the weak are blessed by God in abstaining. This privilege belongs only to the strong. You are blessed of God if you know you could eat that, but decide not to for the sake of others. God will bless you. Amen. That's what God wants. The main theme in the text is that strong should be refrained from eating and drinking in contexts that would injure the weak. Paul introduces the subsidiary theme that strong are correct theology so that they do not misunderstand this exhortation. He said, listen, you are right in your theology, but your practice has to be held back for the sake of others. One should not conclude from this that the weak have a better theology than the strong or have superior faith. That is not true. Paul is saying your theology is right, but, but they should not use these blessings in such a way that will, and here's the word he uses, destroy the weak in your practice. Do not do that. And now we're into number three, which is super important. I think we're going to hold it till next week. But just, I'm just going to start it so you get an eye on it. Maybe you can go home and study it. I think it would be really helpful. Paul's primary exhortation is that the strong should love others enough to abstain from eating and drinking that which would condemn, stumble, uh, grieve, stumbling block, damn the weaker Christian. He says that in many, many ways. <clears throat> I'm going to quickly give them to you. Verse 13, you can be an obstacle and a stumbling block to a brother. Verse 15, you can hurt and destroy a weaker brother. Verse 19, positively, you can, you can bring peace and build them up by not eating. Verse 20, you can tear down the work of God. You can give offense. Verse 21, you can make your brother stumble. Verse 23, and this is the huge one, you can condemn your weaker brother. Those are all possibilities. And all of those words, if not most of those words, 
are extremely strong eschatological words that Paul uses in condemning people to hell. Literally, these are the words that are used. To the Jews, you're a stumbling block. What does that mean? Who's that talking about? Jesus Christ. When Jesus Christ came, whoa, 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 that can't be correct. I, I follow the law. He became a stumbling block. And that stumbling block, they ended up in hell. They rejected him. Every one of these words have those flavors in other passages of Scripture. This is not just a little deal. This is a big deal. And the reason is, these weaker believers believe that, that, that I cannot please God if I eat it. So brothers, don't eat it. That is what your faith is. And if you do eat it, it hurts your conscience, hinders your conscience. And by the way, I don't know if an unbeliever, yeah, this is where it gets difficult. If a weak Christian, and I would say a weak professing Christian, let's put it that way. If a weak professing Christian believes in his heart that I cannot eat that meat, otherwise I am displeasing God. And I don't want to do, I don't want to displease God, so therefore I won't. That's his heart. That's where he's coming from. If someone comes up to him and says, that, that's just childish. That's nothing. That's dumb. Eat it, man. And then he starts eating it. What is he doing? Every bite he takes, I'm displeasing God. I'm displeasing God. Oh, but it's good. All of a sudden, it's very possible. He is motivated by self to do something he, at the beginning, didn't want to do because it was about God. Does that make sense? It's a very convoluted, difficult issue. We will tackle it next week. I can tell you right now, I don't know the answers to this. I don't know. I have ideas, and I'm going to give you those ideas, and I'll call them ideas. But why in the world is Paul using damnation to hell words when talking about how strong Christians are to act around weaker Christians? Because he is. One thing I can be certain of, this is a huge important issue. It's that grave of an issue. Salvation matters. Literally, some of these guys I was reading, they, they literally said, I'm not saying I agree with them. This is what they said. The way you stronger Christians work with weaker Christians, their salvation depends on it. Now, to me, that's taking it too far if they're truly born again. But the reality is, those are the terms he uses. That means... In essence, this is what he's saying. By you flaunting your Christian liberty, you could damn those professing Christians to hell. Do you want that as your crown to heaven for when you get into heaven? I mean, it's that strong of an issue. How many understand this? Again, we're going to deal with this. It has to be fleshed out. We'll work with it more. All right, right now, I'm going to have Tricia come forward, and you can keep recording. We are, take your hymn books and turn with me to 147. I believe it's right, Tricia? 
tell you what this is on page 147 this is amazing grace right amazing grace 147 and that amazing grace is uh where is it look at it, 1851 17 anyways this thing is 250 years it has been used. Is that an awesome thing? 250 years of amazing grace. We're going to sing the first, second, and the last. Okay, Tricia? Let's all stand as we sing amazing grace. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I am found. Was blind, but now I see. Amen? What a great thing. Twas grace that taught my heart to fear and grace my fears relieved how precious did that grace appear the hour i first believed when weep and there ten thousand years bright shining as the sun we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun amen thank you so much for participating in our services this morning I pray that you will read that text and I mean how many that's a scary stuff that's some serious stuff. And when we're talking about Christian liberty and legalism and the extremes of them, they must be rejected. Because Paul's bringing it right down into the center and said, hey, this is the most important thing. Don't you dare hurt a weaker believer. Don't you dare. It's that important. Love one another. Love Christ. You know what? It's all going to work out if that's your focus. Amen? You're dismissed.